For the last several weeks, we've been in a study on spiritual warfare. It's not going to combine this series with, with it's not going to be a, a normal uh, prayer service like what we have where we stop and pray. We have, have way too much to cover for us to, to do that. Um, but it's going to be on prayer. Uh, we're going to talk about warfare praying. As disciples of Jesus, we, we have to understand, we must understand that prayer is the primary way we are to fight spiritual battles. Therefore, we must engage in warfare praying. Warfare praying is when we pray continually, passionately, aggressively, and powerfully for ourselves and others. Uh, we pray this way because we love God, we love prayer, we love people, and we love the church of Jesus Christ. But we also pray this way because we hate the enemy. And we hate what he does to people. And we hate the destruction he brings into their lives. So tonight what I want to do is I want to give us three ways, three actions to take, so we can be disciples of Jesus who who engage in warfare prayer, who pray continually, passionately, aggressively, and powerfully for ourselves and others. The first thing we must do is embrace a wartime mentality. Uh, to embrace a wartime mentality, we must understand and we must embrace the fact we are engaged in a war that affects every area of our lives. And it affects every person we know. This war cannot be avoided. There is no foxhole or bunker or neutral country where we can retreat and not be involved in this war. No matter who we are or how far along we are in our spiritual life, no matter what we believe, there is a spiritual war. It is raging all around us and we are a part of it. Now, as we've talked about in, in other weeks, I'll, I'll cover this quickly-ish. This is a real war with real enemies. And there are three primary enemies. There is the world. Right? The world refers to the morally and spiritually corrupt system opposed to God and his reign. Right? Think of the, the culture around us. The culture around us would include things like pop culture, pop music, popular music, uh, movies, TV, books, magazines, and news media. And it would also include just the general attitude and the morality of the world around us. The, other, the second enemy is the flesh, the world and the flesh. The flesh is our internal wiring leading us to be resistant to the rule and reign of God in our lives. Now the flesh dominates us before we come to Christ. We are slaves to our sinful nature. But once we come to Christ and he has saved us, it's still there. And it still actively works within us to resist the rule and the reign of Jesus in our lives. And then there is the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now the devil is a real being. Not just evil in general. Not an evil influence. Not some sort of personification of evil. But a real being. Of absolute evil who hates and opposes anything and everything that comes from God. Now, the devil has a lot of demons who work for him. Uh, so in, a lot of times, in my, like in my teaching, when I talk about things the devil does, it's probably not actually the devil, but it's the demons working under his guise and under his leadership. One of the many differences between God and the devil is God is omnipresent. God can be everywhere all at the same time. The devil is not that way. The devil is an angel who has fallen from heaven and is so limited to one place at one time, but he has underlings. 
who are committed to doing His will. They're as committed to doing His will as angels are to doing the will of the Father. Now, how many demons are there? No way to know, but a bunch. So a lot of times what the Bible says the devil does is actually things the demons do. Right, So it's in a lot of ways we can interchange them as far as their evil, their working, and their influence in the world around us. So these three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they work together to oppose, attack, and destroy all who are made in the image of God and those who have been redeemed by the Son of God. And here's, they work together. Right, This is the thing, we, we can't think of them as simply, there's the world out there, there's the devil somewhere, and then there's our flesh. It's not that these are three independent enemies. These are three independent enemies that work together to bring about our destruction. Right? Internally, the flesh works against us and God's plans in our lives. It is always resisting. Right? As Galatians says, the spirit pulls us in one way and the flesh is pulling us in another. It's always at work. Externally, the world seeks to arouse our flesh into action. The world opposes God in such a way the flesh tries to convince us what the world is promoting is better than what God has designed. Right. So the flesh already wants to resist the rule of God. But the world outside is saying, look at how good resisting the rule of God is. Look at how good doing something other than what God wants is. Look at how right or kind or compassionate or or loving it is to be this way. And our flesh works to convince us, yes, that's right, doesn't that make sense? And then the world will paint whatever picture is necessary to arouse the flesh to depart from God's divine design. And then in the end, Satan is the one who controls the world. God's word is is clear. Satan is called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Now the world there doesn't mean the plains and the mountains and the seas. Those things declare God's glory according to Psalm 19 and 1. What Satan is the God of, what what lies under the power of Satan is a culture promoting values And ideas contrary to God and contradictory to his word and in defiance of his son. Satan is the God of a culture which demands we accept all religions as equal in the name of tolerance. Satan is the God of a culture where eagle eggs are sacred and must be protected at all costs. Why a fetus is just a clump of cells that can be destroyed at any time. Satan is the god of a culture that encourages young people to rebel against and despise their parents. Satan is the god of a culture which rejects and opposes God's design for life, marriage, sexuality, and family. A wartime mentality understands and embraces the reality of spiritual warfare with real spiritual enemies. But it's not just Something that they say, well, yeah, I guess that's true. A wartime mentality responds and and realizes, thinks about this fact. A wartime mentality doesn't see kids in rebellion and immorality and say, well, 
kids are going to be kids. That's a defeatist mindset. That's a worldly mindset. That is most certainly not a world, a Christian wartime mindset. A wartime mindset doesn't see cultural values violently contradict the values of God's word. Shrug its shoulders and say, well, the world is just different now. Things are always going to change. A wartime mentality doesn't see other people as the enemy. Because those with a wartime mentality know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. A wartime mentality knows that spiritual enemies are the real enemy and not the people the real enemy uses. People with a wartime mentality will not compromise in one area to win a victory in another. Because those with a wartime mentality know that compromise is spiritual defeat, wherein souls are lost to the enemy. And they refuse to lose souls in this area so they can win a battle and gain souls in this area. They fight all fronts. If we are to have a be wartime prayers, if we are to pray continually, passionately, aggressively, and powerfully for ourselves and others, we must adopt this wartime mentality. Now, part of the wartime mentality is to realize that this spiritual warfare is always going on. And we'll talk about that more in a bit. But there are times where it's obvious we're in a spiritual battle. We feel it. We see it. But there are times where we're not as aware of it. But the battle is still raging, even at that point. There, there is no ceasefire until Jesus reigns. There is no ceasefire until New Jerusalem comes down. Right? We are always in this battle. And a wartime mentality always realizes this. Secondly, we embrace a wartime mentality. But secondly, we, we must be aware of Satan's schemes. Now, since Satan is the God of this world who is doing so much damage, we need to know how he works so we can oppose him in prayer. Now, again, God's word has given us quite a bit of information about how Satan works and what his goals are. Jesus said Satan is a thief who comes to steal, to kill and destroy. Peter says Satan is like a roaring lion, always looking for someone to devour. From this, we can say Satan seeks to destroy as much as he can in any way he can. And we know from looking at the world around us, he is successful at doing these things. Now, there are many ways Satan works to bring about his destruction, but I think there are four primary categories. And these are broad categories. They, would, they cover a lot of ground, but I think these are the broad categories we see in God's word. One is deception. John 8, 44, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies, a liar and the father of lies. Revelation 12, 9 tells us Satan deceives the whole world. And then 2 Corinthians 11 and 3, Paul was afraid Satan through his craftiness had corrupted the disciples' minds and turned them away from Jesus. Now, one of the great examples of the way Satan deceives is the Gibeonites from Joshua chapter 9. If you're... 
I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Joshua, but when they went into the land, one of the things that God told them was not to make any treaties with any of the people of the land under any circumstances. Well, they come in and they start having victories. So the people of Gibeah, they determine they're probably going to win. So they, they hatch a plot. And what they do is they dress in ratty clothes. They get moldy food. They get old wineskins that are brittle. And they ride their horses really hard to Joshua. And when they arrive at the camp, they say, make a treaty with us. We're from far away. And Joshua and the people and the elders, they say, I don't know. If we're going to make a treaty with you, you might be nearby. And we're not allowed to make treaties with the people nearby. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. No, look at these clothes. I mean, they were right off the rack when we left. This food was hot out of the oven. Now look at how moldy it is. These were new wineskins. Look at how brittle they are. Oh man, we, we've come from a long way off. And the Bible explicitly tells us Joshua did not seek the Lord. And then he entered into a treaty with them. Contrary to God's will because they were from the land. So a Gibeonite is a person who encourages someone To do something contrary to God's will by appealing to their natural senses and discouraging them from seeking God or his word for guidance. A Gibeonite is a person who encourages someone to do something contrary to God's will by appealing to the natural senses while discouraging them from seeking God or his word for guidance. But deception is a key aspect of the Gibeonite influence. Who encourages kids to get drunk, to sleep around, to send naked selfies, to do drugs, to rebel and despise against their parents. Gibeonites do. Who encourages husbands or wives to have affairs. Gibeonites do. Who encourages Christians and people to be open to other religions and other forms of non-Christ-centered spirituality? Gibeonites do. Gibeonites do all of these things and more, but make no mistake, Satan and his deception is always behind the Gibeonite. Deception is a key part of what Satan does as the father of lies. Second, temptation. Matthew 4, 3, uh, Satan tried to tempt Jesus to sin. Um, It's interesting that he tried to tempt Jesus to sin. I'm always awed by the audacity of going to Jesus and trying to lead the Son of God, whom he knew to be the Son of God, into sin. Now, when Satan tempts us, or he tempts people, there are typically like four basic lies that he'll tell them. It's no big deal. This isn't that big a deal. No one is ever going to know. You deserve this, appealing to human pride, which is terribly effective. Or you don't have a choice. He doesn't use all of them. He doesn't have to use all of them. He may use one of them or a couple of them. But we see all of this in our culture today in regard to sin. It's no big deal. Come on, if that's the worst thing you ever do... Your head and shoulders above the majority of the world. No one's ever going to know. It's all going to stay a secret. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You deserve this. 
You deserve it. And then you don't have a choice. Maybe you were born this way. You just don't have a choice but to do this. These lies are all part of Satan's schemes to destroy. 1 Thessalonians 3.5 is fascinating. The temptation the Thessalonians were facing wasn't to wicked immorality. The temptation was to give up on their faith and on their devotion to Jesus. They had been suffering severe persecution for their faith. And in those times, some had given up and stopped living for Jesus. And in doing so, they had given in to Satan's temptations. I believe it's safe to conclude any time someone gives up on their faith and their devotion and their service to Jesus, they are giving in to Satan's temptation. Temptation doesn't have to be to wicked immorality. It can be just to give up serving and being devoted to Christ. A third is separation. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18. Paul had a great desire to go back to Thessalonica and, and help the believers there. Paul had not only wanted to go to them, but apparently tried to go to them, but was unable. And, and Paul explicitly says Satan had prevented him from doing it. Now, again, that's one of those things I find fascinating. How does the enemy of the people of God prevent an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ from doing things? I don't know. The, the word that Paul used in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18, it, it almost pictures like the road being tore up. Now, I doubt Satan dug a deep trench in the hole that Paul couldn't cross, but it pictures an obstruction. So Satan had actively obstructed the Apostle Paul from going back to the believers. That's a powerful thought. Galatians 4.16. The Galatian Christians were being led away by false teachers. Paul had written to them telling them these false teachers were in fact false teachers. And the people had turned on Paul. So he asked them if he had become their enemy by telling them the truth. Paul's relationship with the Galatians was being severed by these enemies of Christ. 2 Corinthians 7, 2 and 3 is similar. Uh, Paul asked them to open their hearts to him because his heart was open to them. The picture is of them closing off their hearts to Paul because they didn't like what he was saying specifically about the false teachers. In both Galatians and 2 Corinthians, Paul is clear Satan is behind the false teachers. Satan had caused the separation between Paul and these churches. What Satan did then, he does now. Satan actively works to keep people from the fellowship of the saints. He wants to keep people from church. Now, I think this is an important point for us to understand. Now, obviously, if you're out on a bitterly cold Wednesday night in the middle of winter, you understand this point. But it's important for us to understand it if we have to talk to somebody else. Who is it, do we reckon, that would want to keep people out of church? Would it be the God who planned the church? Probably not. Would it be the Christ who, who died for the church and considers the church his bride? Seems really unlikely. Would it be the Spirit who, who makes us one and works in the church and birthed the church on Acts 2? Well, not likely. So if it's not, is it the Word of God which 
talks repeatedly about the church. Well, it's not. So if it's not Father God, if it's not the Son of God, and if it's not the Word of God, and if it's not the Spirit of God, then then who do we imagine is working in people's lives, making them see the church as optional, as unimportant to their lives? I think the clearest answer would be the enemy of God. So not only does he want to keep people out of church, but he also wants to keep them from people who will tell them the truth. Right? Because he didn't necessarily work to keep the Galatians out of church. He just wanted them to be away from Paul, who was telling them the truth about their teachers. So if you or I, if we work at being a Jesus influence on the people around us, And the people we're trying to be a Jesus influence on are are people Satan is actively trying to lead lead astray. Satan will work to separate them from us. So our influence doesn't ruin his plans to steal, kill, or destroy. And and again, I I won't spend long here because we don't have as much time. But we see this. If we invite someone to church and they react angrily, where does that anger come from? We're not inviting them to come for a sin beaten. We're just inviting them to come and hear. Why get angry over that? Because there is an evil influence in their life trying to separate them from us who are trying to bring them to Christ. We have to understand the enemy is actively at work seeking to separate people from the church of God. And he is seeking to separate people from the people of God. And then he works through condemnation. Revelation tells us Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. He not only accuses us to God, but he'll accuse us to us. Many times Satan's accusations come in the form of reminding us of past failures He'll continually accuse us because of sins we have done, sins God has forgiven, and He'll keep us beat down over those things. He'll also accuse us of things we haven't done. He'll make us feel that we are utterly worthless, that we are failures. He'll convince people they should die. They're of no use. That Jesus has no use for them. That Jesus won't forgive them. Satan will attack through condemnation and make people feel condemned. Sometimes despite actually being saved. And having the righteousness of Christ into them. And again, this is a, an important point for us to understand. There is a level of conviction a believer should have over sin they currently commit. That's healthy. Should lead us to the cross. Should lead us to Christ. To receive grace. To get up and move out with purpose. But lingering feelings of worthlessness, whether for a believer or for an unbeliever, is never God. A voice telling someone, you're stupid, you're useless, you should die, is never from God. 
God is not in the beating people down and making them feel worthless game. That is not what he does. Now, he will convict of sin. But that conviction is always meant to lead to the cross, to lead to Jesus. Just the general feelings of condemnation and worthlessness is never, ever from Christ, from the Spirit, from the Father. It is always from the enemy of our souls. We must know that for ourselves and we must know that for others we're trying to help. Now, these are just some of the ways Satan works in the world. These are all things God's word tells us he does. These are broad categories. But I think under those broad categories, if we looked at the world, we could see different things and say, well, that's deception and that's temptation and that's this and that's that. Satan is real. And so we, we cannot afford to be naive about Satan's schemes to destroy we, we can't be naive about how effective he is at destroying through these lives, through these schemes. And we can't be naive at how active he is in doing this. I, I think if there is any area for us who are Baptistic that has to change, an area of our mind that has to change... It is the recognition of how active Satan is. Often, we act as though that's not really a thing. He doesn't really actively work in people's lives. That it's just poor decisions, or it's a bad way of thinking they have, or it's something, but it's all within the person. There's no outside evil forces leading them astray, deceiving and tempting and separating and condemning them. And yet when we get into God's word, we find Satan is in fact very, very active in the world around us. He's actively deceiving people so they will not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 says that, let me, let me read this, because this is, this is probably the, the clearest verse on this concept. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world. So there's the world which is leading the sin dead along a particular path. But what is guiding the world that's leading them according to the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. So the sin dead are walking a particular path of life that the world, the evil world, is leading them on. And, the, and the, the prince of the power of the air is the one charting the world's course. And he is the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. Did, did you catch what it said? The spirit that is now working... In the sons of disobedience. According to Ephesians. Every lost person. Every person who's walking according to the course of this world. Is being led in some ways by the prince of the power of the air. And his spirit, whether it's through him or through the demons, are working in them. I mean, it says are now working, not have worked at some point in the past, not will work at some point in the future, but are now. 
So every time someone is deceived and led away from the truth, we can say the enemy is is literally deceiving them. Deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, the father of lies is actively working to deceive them. He's actively working to tempt them. He's actively working to keep them separated. He is actively working to bring condemnation to them, to destroy them. We cannot be naive at how active he is at working in the world around us. We must be aware of Satan's schemes so we can be alert and pray continually, passionately, aggressively and powerfully warfare prayers for ourselves and for others. And then lastly, pray aggressively. Most of us really don't know how to wage spiritual war in prayer. And so what happens is we do one of two things. We we copy a prayer. We find a book or a website or a video or a podcast telling us how to pray against the enemy who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy, and we copy it. The problem is very often these sorts of prayers and the things that they say to do are not actually in God's Word. I'll give you one example. Years ago, a well-known Southern Gospel singer was, was busted hooking up with male prostitutes. And he wanted... To be delivered. He didn't just want to be forgiven. He came off the road. He was handling it the right way. But he, he did not want those desires to be a part of his life anymore. And a church promised him deliverance if he would come and go through their deliverance program. And he detailed it in, in an article he wrote. And he, he went up on stage. And he laid down in the crucifix position. And people stood at the different spots of the crucifix. And they prayed certain things. And then somebody else poured holy water on his head and on his heart and on his hands and on his feet. And all of this was meant to deliver him. Now, the the problem with this, he found it all very encouraging. The problem with that is none of that stuff is actually in the Bible. That sort of stuff is much closer to witchcraft than it is to Christianity. Right? So... Even things like holy water. I mean, do we realize that the Bible never talks about the idea of water being holy? That people can bless the water and, and the water then is, it becomes a weapon against the enemy. That, that's actually not in the Bible. That is a, a superstition that was created at some point in the past. And the Bible doesn't tell us to pray certain kinds of prayers or certain exact words and that these exact words always have these exact results. That's witchcraft. Witchcraft is if you say the right things in the right way at the right position at the right time, then these right things will happen. As Christians, our faith is not in the fact that we say the right words at the right time. Our faith is in the God who hears 
Our faith is in the power of God. We, as Christians, we don't even have to say all the right words. There is a Holy Spirit who lives within us. And He intercedes for us with words, which are with groanings, which cannot be uttered. He takes our imperfect prayers, what we wanted to say, what we would have said, what we should have said. He perfects it. He lifts it up to the Father according to His will. That's our hope. Our hope is not that we pray aright. Our hope is that the Spirit of God lives within us and He helps us to pray. We don't have to get caught up in that sort of stuff. It's not helpful, doesn't typically accomplish anything, and it's not according to God's word. And so we don't want to get caught up in copying something that we find online. Or what we do is we pray weakly and passively. And what I mean is we don't know what to pray. And so we say not much more than than God help. God, God help John Smith, or he's being led astray, God help. Which is, I mean, that's, again, the Holy Spirit takes and perfects. That's far better than praying nothing. But to me, when I pray, it feels insufficient. When I think about the spiritual battles waged with the souls I care about, the people I love, I feel angry and I believe it is a righteous anger I feel. And I feel aggressive about it. And I want the way I pray and I wage spiritual war to reflect the anger and the aggression I feel. There are a couple of ways that, that I have found to give expression to this in how I pray. First is pray the Bible. Pick a passage and pray it. Now there are two primary ways we can do this. The ways that I do it. One is to look for a passage. And try to be specific. If you're praying for a specific person. This John Smith. That whatever's going on. And you choose a passage to study to pray that will help diagnose the situation, the problem in John Smith's life. That will reveal what is needed in that particular situation and gives us a way to pray. For example, let's say someone <coughs> believes something contrary to God's word. And what they believed that was contrary to God's word was keeping them from God. Could be any number of issues in our day. So we might look at a passage like 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God and are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, a fortress, a couple of different explanations for it, but in the context for tonight... A fortress is something people erect to keep God away, right? A fortress is a place where you go to hide, to be safe. A fortress in the mind is something people erect in their minds where they can be safe from the knowledge of God. 
We can talk to them about God, but they say, no, no, this right here, this fortress, and it protects them from ever having to deal with the reality of God who has a plan and has calls on them to live certain ways and makes demands on their life. So we look at this and we can say, what is the what diagnosis their problem? They have these beliefs contrary to God's word, and those things are keeping them from God. Well, they have erected a fortress in their mind. They've they've built this thing up. And it's protecting them against the knowledge of God. They have embraced ideas keeping them from knowing God. That's the the primary issue going on in their life. The the particular thing isn't really the issue. It's just a symptom. The particular issue is they've erected a fortress and embraced ideas to protect them from knowing God and from having to answer to God. So what is their need? Well, they need the fortress to be smashed. They need to know the truth that sets them free. They need their thoughts to be brought captive to the obedience of Christ. So then, knowing the problem, knowing the need, how would we pray? We could, one, we would pray to fight with spiritual weapons rather than worldly ones. And I think this is, a, again, an important point. Because for most of us, we are more comfortable with worldly weapons rather than spiritual ones. Right. We want to yell at them. We want to say, are you stupid? I mean, we have all of these normal ways that we want to shake them and wake them up. Are you an idiot? Right. But that doesn't help. What that does is it reinforces the fortress. So we pray that as we fight for their souls, we don't give in to our flesh and we don't fight with worldly weapons. But we maybe pray God would make them question their beliefs or their doubts. Right? They believe something keeping them from God. God to work in them and make them question that. Or they have doubts about God that keeps them from God. God to begin to make them question their doubts. One of the realities is unbelievers often assail Christians as being unwilling to question their beliefs because they're afraid of what they'll find. Just as true, more true, I dare say, unbelievers are afraid to question their doubts for fear that God is real and they are indeed accountable to him. Pray their worldview would be shaken and collapse. Pray God would bring his truth to bear on the lies they believe. That's just some ways we could do it from that. Or maybe someone doesn't see their need for Jesus. So we, we go to 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they will not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, who not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants on account of Jesus. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in the hearts to give the light of the knowledge, the glory of God, and the face of Jesus Christ. So the diagnosis, they're they're blinded by Satan. Right? If the gospel is veiled. So any person we know, if they do not see their need for Jesus, Satan is blinding them. That's what it says. And they're perishing. Right? So even if they're what we might call a good moral person, they are still under the wrath and the condemnation of God, and they will die and go to hell because they have rejected the Son of God. It makes the situation urgent. 
Satan is actively blinding them and he will destroy them if something doesn't happen. That's the diagnosis, the need. Well, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. They need someone to tell them the gospel. They need someone to preach Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And they need God to work through that sharing to reveal Jesus. Right? For God who said light shall shine the darkness, the one who shone the light, shown in the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So it's not just the sharing they need, but they need God to make that powerful and effective. So how would we pray in light of this? Well, pray for God to give us opportunities to share the gospel. Now, let me say again, clearly, they need Jesus. They need the gospel. This is one of those issues, again, where we have to be particular to what it says. They don't need our views on abortion or homosexuality. They need Jesus. They don't need our view of the midterm election or the 2024 election. They need Jesus. Right. This isn't the time to talk about Bible versions or the kind of music we prefer or whether women ought to wear dresses or pants or have their hair up or have their hair down or preachers should wear ties or suits. This is the time to talk about Jesus and their need of Jesus. So we pray for God to give us opportunities to share Jesus with them. But we know we're not necessarily the one that God's going to use. So we pray for God to send someone to share Jesus with them. Pray for God to make them see their need for Jesus. And maybe there's somebody we know that was had a, has some sort of a church background and they know the Bible a little bit. And we pray God would take what they already know and they would use it to draw them to Jesus. One more example and we'll move on with something else on this. Someone's living a sinful lifestyle. We might go to 2 Timothy 2. It says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So the diagnosis, they are in opposition to God, right? Correcting those who are in opposition. They have lost their senses. Where's it at? May come to their senses. There it is. They have been snared by Satan. And they have been taken captive to do his will. So any person we know who's living a sinful lifestyle, living an act of sin against the Lord... This is a diagnosis against them. Through their lifestyle, they're in opposition to God. They've lost their senses in some way. They've been snared by Satan in some way. And they have been taken captive by him to do his will. So what do they need in light of this? Someone to gently and patiently teach them and correct them. They need to come to their senses. Think like the prodigal son who came to his senses. They need that sort of a moment. They need to repent and they need to escape Satan's snare. So how do we how do we pray? Well, we pray to not personally get caught up in foolish arguments with them. And again, 
This isn't the time to get caught up in all of those other things. They need Jesus. So we don't want it. We pray that we wouldn't get caught up in their arguments. We we pray that we wouldn't quarrel with them. We pray to be patient with them. We pray for someone, if not us, who could come to them and will gently and patiently teach them and correct them. We pray they would come to their senses. Now, praying for them to come to their senses may require us to pray their lives get difficult. Right? Again, the prodigal son came to his senses, but he didn't come to his senses while he had all that money to burn and all the partying going on. It came to his senses when he had lost all his money, lost all his friends, and was looking at hog slop, thinking that looked like some good eating to him. For people, when we pray for people to come to their senses, we, we may just be praying for God to basically make their lives collapse so they can see what a mess they've made. But if it leads them to salvation through Christ, better they lose a lot of physical things and go through physical troubles if their souls can be saved in the end. We pray Jesus would deliver them. We pray God would grant them repentance unto life. More passages you could use, but these are the ones I use often. And you get the idea of what you can do. Or you can pick a passage and pray the specific request for a person. Let me give you an example. Turn to Psalm 24. I like Psalm 24 just because it's easy to do. And it's one I pray often. Typically on the 24th of every month. So we're praying for the fellow John Smith. We look at verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord and all it contains. The world and those who live on it. For he, God, has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the river. So the earth and all it contains, the world and all those who live on it, belong to God. That's what it says. So we could pray this way. Verses 1 and 2. John Smith belongs to you, Lord. Let your reign in his life be made visible as you claim him, redeem him, and sanctify him. Verse 3. Who may ascend onto the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? That, That speaks of being in the presence of the Lord. So we might pray for John Smith that God would make him think about eternity. What's going to happen when he dies? Make him wonder if he's going to be with God. When this life is over, and if he thinks he is, why does he think that? You know, most people think that if there's a heaven, there's going, but they've never really thought through a reason about why. What if God were to begin to plan a thought? Why do I think that? And they begin to work through it. This is how we could pray. Verse 4. Well, who can? It says, those who have clean hands and a pure heart, not lifted up his soul to deceit, and has not sworn deceitfully. So, Clean hands refer to basically holiness or not being not sinful, not getting involved in sinful actions. So we pray for John Smith. He would be made aware of his sin and the dirtiness of it. Again, most people don't realize they've sinned. Most people really don't think deeply about sin. That's just how they live their life. And maybe it's not best, but it's not sin. We want them to think about how dirty their sin is, how severe and I, and I, I use, for me, when I use, because it says clean hands, the most common thing any of us get dirty and have to wash is our hands. 
So I, when I pray for someone for this, when I pray for John Smith in this way, I pray that every time he washes his hands, he begins to think. Well, these get dirty a lot. My sin's kind of like that. It's just always here. No matter how much I try to clean it, I never really get rid of it. Who has a pure heart. Right? As the pure heart speaks of inner holiness. So we want John Smith to realize sin is not just an action he takes. It's, it's a part of who he is because it flows from the desires of his heart. As he washes his hands day after day, begins to realize he can't cleanse himself. And begin to wonder what needs to be done to make him genuinely pure. Has not lifted up his soul to deceit or some translations say vanity. That speaks of idols. Lifted up their soul means they've worshipped idols. So this person, John Smith, trusts in something that is not God for his salvation. Again, most people assume that if there's a heaven, they're going. And they believe that even if they are not Christians and they don't believe that Jesus died and rose again for their sins. So there is something John Smith is trusting in for his salvation. Maybe because he's an American. Maybe because he's a good person as he defines goodness. Maybe because he's never worshipped any sort of false god. Maybe because he's never worshipped any god at all. Maybe just because he's spiritual. Whatever. John Smith has in some ways lifted up his soul to a vanity and to deceit. And so we pray for God to break down this, this person's sense of personal righteousness. To cause their, their worldview. And the reasons they feel righteous to collapse around them as they begin to wonder if what they're trusting in is a lie. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is in Isaiah. I couldn't tell you what chapter because I wasn't going to say it. Um, but a lot of times the stuff that's up here that doesn't make it in here, it comes out here anyway. Anyway, Isaiah talks about an, a man who makes idols. And he goes out to the woods and he cuts down a tree. And with part of it, he builds a fire to warm himself. And then with part of it, he makes a God that he's going to worship. And then as he sits there, it's, this is an exact quote. It's a bad paraphrase. But there's a part of him that wonders, can you really make a God out of half a tree that you are burning for a common? I mean, can it be, can the one tree be both a God and just fuel for the fire? But he won't ask himself that question because he can't bring himself to wonder if he's believing a lie. And I think many people are that way. And again, we want them we want them to ask that question. Is what I believe a lie? Is what I'm trusting in a lie? We we want them to begin to question their worldview to fall down. Verse 5. He will receive a blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of his salvation. We've talked about righteousness, but Talking about uh, receive a blessing. Because John Smith may have had hard things in his life, but John Smith's life's probably pretty good if he's an American. And we want John Smith to wonder why is his life so good? Why does he have so much when there are other people in other parts of the world who have so little? There is no God, and the world is essentially meaningless. Why is there such beauty? Why is there such goodness? Where did all of these things come from? 
And, and we're praying in essentially James 1.18. Every good gift comes down from God. We want them to, we want John Smith to realize his life is good because there is a good God overall. We want him to realize there's beauty in the world because there is a beautiful God who is over all. We want him to understand that all of these things he has and has experienced are a reflection of God's goodness, God's beauty, and God's love for sinful humanity. Verse 6. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. We, we want John, God to do all these things in John Smith's life so he will begin to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord for salvation and righteousness. Seek the Lord for his greatness and his goodness. Seek the Lord to know more about the great and the awesome God who has done so much for him. And then verse 7 through 10, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. May the King of glory come in. Who is the King of glory? Strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Let them lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. And this, in a lot of ways, the way I pray, it goes back to what we talked about in Second Corinthians 10. We want God to powerfully work to break down the strongholds they've placed over their minds and their hearts to protect them from the knowledge of God. We want them... To ask the question, who is the king of glory? We want God to be strong and mighty, mighty in battle to to lift up those gates so the king of glory can go in. We want their thoughts to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. This is a way you can pick a passage and use the request to pray. I mean, you can see that's an aggressive way to pray. But the most aggressive way to pray is to pray the imprecatory psalms. And the imprecatory psalms are the psalms where the psalmist prays for God to do bad things to his enemies, right? Break their teeth out, break their arms, rain down fire on their heads. And I don't think this is what Jesus meant when he says we're to pray for those who despitefully use us. But I do think it's valid to pray these things on our spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because again, they're very active in leading people astray. Very active in deceiving and destroying and so what we can do is we can take the aggressive prayers, the imprecatory psalms, and we can pray them against the spiritual enemy seeking to destroy the person or family that we're concerned about. For, for example, Psalm 69, pour out your indignation upon them and may your burning anger overtake them. And, and this is me. When I'm praying for someone being attacked by the enemy, someone I love, someone I care about, someone I can see being destroyed, I would much rather pray, God, pour out your indignation on whatever seeking to destroy John Smith. Take hold of this enemy with your wrathful anger and deliver this person. I would much rather pray that than, than God help John Smith. The imprecatory Psalms can teach us how to pray aggressively against evil spiritual forces. The world, the flesh, and the devil that are seeking to steal, kill, and destroy those we know and love. I started doing this with the imprecatory psalms. I didn't, I mean, I'd never seen anybody do that before. Um, but to me, it just made sense. So I started doing it. Since then, I have, have read books where this is Christians of ages gone by in the olden days. Uh, they did do that. So I, I feel very confident in my doing it. And even... Even if it doesn't help more than God help, 
I feel more encouraged when I pray that way. Maybe you won't. Maybe you're not as aggressive and angry a person as I am. I feel aggressive and angry over those issues. I feel more encouraged praying that way than I do praying God help. If I just sit and pray God help, God help, God help, I often get up feeling discouraged and helpless and powerless and just... But if I pray that way, I feel encouraged, I feel strengthened, I feel my God is awesome. And there is something positive and powerful about that as well. Now the thing about warfare praying is that it never really ends. A victory today doesn't ensure victory tomorrow. Rather, what we can be sure of is the battle will rage tomorrow just as it did today. Satan is ever a roaring lion, prowling about, seeking someone to devour. So long as we're alive, the battle rages and we must fight. At the same time, warfare praying never ends because no one is ever out of God's reach so long as they're alive. Our hearts may ache over the people we know and love who've gone deep into a a spiral of depravity or have built multiple strongholds in their minds or whose hearts seem unbelievably hard. But no matter how it seems, the reality is the Holy Spirit can smash any fortress. The blood of Christ can cleanse the deepest stain. The grace of God still abounds much more where sin did abound. Warfare praying never ends because no living person is ever so far gone. God cannot save them and restore them. And in many cases, our prayers for them are the only thing that stands between them and everlasting judgment. Let's take time.